0: guys. Thank you so much for that beautiful, beautiful music. Welcome everyone to our first ever attempt at a Midwestern Mockingbird conference. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you especially, though, to our committee that helped put this on. You guys are out there, I know, and especially to everyone at St. Michael's, it really means the world that you've welcomed us into this incredible facility. So thank you so much. Um, I'll give you a grade at the end of the conference. That's when you'll pass or fail. Set up very. <laughs> uh, but seriously, thank you so much for coming, and I think we're gonna have a lot of fun over these next, I guess, like 18 hours or so. It's gonna go by real fast. When we thought about doing a conference out in Minnesota, especially in Minneapolis, um, I-, I said yes, not only because of the welcome that we'd received, but because my favorite band Is from Minneapolis. I'm a big music guy and so my favorite band is this band. You guys know who these guys are? No, this is The Replacements. They are total, um, I mean I I saw them and I never combed my hair again. I love these guys. They are from the 80s and this past week actually their greatest album was just reissued and it's been written up all over the place in every sort of outlet. And uh, the the reason people like this band, the reason I like this band, is a little bit to do with their relationship with pressure. You see, they struck out every time they went to bat. That's why I identify with this band, sort of maybe next to the Beach Boys. I love the replacements. They called themselves the biggest worst band in the world. The biggest, worst band in the world. If you want to know a little bit about them, well, Paul Westerberg is the guy uh, all the way to the left, and he had congenitally malformed pinkies, which uh, meant that he couldn't, um, he was a self-taught guitarist, he had to only play in open tunings. So that sort of defined their sound. But more than that, there was something wrong with the ulnar nerves in his elbows. So he could never quite completely extend his arms, which meant that they never were very good, okay? (laughs) You need to be able to, you know, really go for it. They had a lot of energy and a lot of heart. And that's why people like the replacements. He also um, had a, a, a condition called pleurisy, uh, which shredded his singing voice uh, the louder he sang. And so anytime you hear him sing, it sounds like blood is filling his mouth. So, aren't, I mean, this is like, this is why I'm here. Um, so they are a band, though. They had a big following in Minneapolis, and then they finally got their, their break, and they were going to be signed to Warner Brothers and make a, a, a big album. It was their chance to break through. It was 1986, and they recorded this album called Tim, and it flopped. Okay, that's the one that's been re-released this week. And it didn't just, it didn't flop because the songs are bad. The songs are amazing. No, this was a band that was defined by and loved for its bad decisions, <laughs> well, what do I mean? Well, I mean they played Saturday Night Live, and they were so drunk that they were banned from Saturday Night Live to ever going back again. They liked Schlitz, you know that, that, that terrible beer from the from I guess Minneapolis. I'm sh- I guess it's it's great. Um, they had a great they had a major anthem on this record called Bastards of Young, and they made this is MTV was just coming out, and so they decided to film. A speaker for three and a half minutes with no people, no movement, nothing. That is a a way to shoot yourself in the foot. They were a band that was caught in a perpetual cycle of fear, self-loathing, drinking, and destruction. And they amassed a cult fan base who loved them precisely because of that cycle. The replacements were so innately and talented and alluring that they should have been playing arenas and climbing the charts every year, but then they wouldn't have been the replacements. They had a very peculiar but not altogether foreign to those who know the Bible uh, relationship with expectation. The second they caught a whiff of pressure or expectation, they went as far as they could in the opposite direction they sabotaged themselves. And they sang about it. The very first lines of this song, Bastards of Young, is Paul Westerberg saying, God, what a mess on the ladder of success. You take one step and miss the whole first rung. Right? So, if we're talking about life as a pressure cooker. You know, today the, the pressure on artists is not only to be good at their art, but also to be good as people, right? And that, if that had been the case, they wouldn't have even gotten the major label deal because they were such deadbeats. But uh, today we're sort of living not in the world the replacement's built. We're living in the world that is described by this book, We talked about it on the Mockingcast, if anyone listens to it. This is called Never Enough. It came out this month. uh, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It by Jennifer Brennehy Wallace. Now, what she's interested in doing in this book is talking to high-achieving high schoolers. What it comes to find out, she read a couple of reports that were issued in 2019 that found that high-achieving, or students from high-achieving high schools were an at-risk group, officially an at-risk group for depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. This was discovered when an anthropologist named Sunyaha Luthar was trying to study the habits of of teenagers in in poverty-stricken areas, and she needed a control group to compare their performance with, and so she went to, I think it was Wilton, Connecticut or somewhere like that, and what she found was that the, the rich kids were just as prone, in fact, more so to these debilitating conditions. And so, sooner, eventually, what happened in 2019, 2020, was that the, the great at-risk groups of teenagers, uh, I think number one are children with incarcerated parents, number two are children in the foster care system, and number three are children at high-achieving high schools on the East and West Coast. Now, that is a great microcosm of the, of the central question of the 21st century in the West. And that's the question of why are we so unhappy when we've never had more? The great question that Walker Percy asks, why is man so unsatisfied in an age in which he has so much? Shouldn't these kids who no one feels sorry for, who have had every privilege, shouldn't they be doing well? But no, they're an at-risk group. Wallace quotes one young woman Uh, named Amanda who said, we live in a community where your grades, how you look, your weight, where you travel, what your house looks like, everything has to be the best to be perfect and to look effortless. She, they go on to talk about youth sports. Anyone involved in youth sports these days? Well, I didn't know this, but sports have been subject to what we would call the achievement creep or the pressure creep, unlike anything else in our culture. That now, um, not only do we have um, all-star rankings in basketball for the top kids in the country, it goes, the top fourth graders in the country are now being tracked according to who is the very best. It's hard to find a hobby, Minecraft, mountain biking, macrame, that can't be turned into an exhausting pursuit of excellence. She goes on, she says a lot of interesting things that that I guess in 2021, the US Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, wrote to say that in 2019, one in three high school students and half of female students reported persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, an overall increase of 40% since 2009. Now this degree of pressure which is put on kids to achieve and to get into schools that are increasingly hard to get into, it has not just sort of mental health consequences, but physical health ones. Living in a constant state of vigilance, Wallace writes, with a steady flow of the associated neurochemicals and hormones can cause both short-term and long-term damage, including heart disease, cancer, chronic lung and liver disease, diabetes, and stroke. One study found that by age 26, former students of high-achieving schools were two to three times more likely to struggle with addiction than their middle-class peers. Now, throughout her research, and this is, you could read the whole book, it's, it's not uplifting, um, <laughs> but <laughs> you, could, you could tell that already. This is what she says. She's talking about these unhappy teenagers. She says, "'What emerged from my research hit me like an ice bath.'" Our kids are absorbing the idea that their worth is contingent on their performance, their GPA, the number of social media followers they have, their college brands. Not for who they are deep at their core. They feel they only matter to the adults in their lives, their peers, and the larger community if they are successful. Now that is a description of a culture which is under pressure. You don't have to be going uh, into a major label contract to experience a degree of pressure simply by nature of being alive. I remember I've got a 13-year-old, and I, had, I took him to, he was dying to play baseball on the fall team, and I said, okay, son, we'll, we'll sign you up for this league, or at least the tryouts. And I got to the tryouts, and he was terrible. <sighs> not because he's not athletic, but because I just found out that half the kids there had been doing all-star programs the entire summer, and their their, their summer had been cut short to three weeks because they were on the road playing baseball at age 12. I don't think any of these kids are going to the uh, major leagues, by the way. However, um, I had to apologize to my son in the car ride home. I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that you were supposed to have three practices a week from age six onward. He still hasn't forgiven me. (laughs) Okay, we're talking about achievement pressure. What about financial pressure? Anyone feel the squeeze these days? Like you you travel, and I just, I was, I wanted to get one of those like oatmeal bowls at the, at the, at the Charlotte airport this morning, but I wasn't going to fork over $18, you know? And, (laughs) I don't know what it is, what your metric is for knowing what, but how many emails did we all get this summer from places that we're subscribed to, or stores we frequent saying we're so sorry, we have to raise our prices. Your subscription to Hulu is going from $6.99 to $8.99 a month starting in September. Did you get these emails? I got a lot of them. Maybe I'm subscribed to too many of those channels. I would (laughs) get, um, there's so much good content. Um. But inflation is merciless, and is so merciless for, for my, my wife and myself, we decided in order to get out from under some financial pressure on our life, we were going to sell our house and move into a house a little further away that costs a little bit less, but we could then have a little bit of a cushion to afford three kids needing to play baseball nonstop. <laughs> right? And so um, we did this, and it was uh, terrible. Uh, never do it. It's the most mercenary thing you can do is to, to try to move houses in a town uh, that's producing unhappy teenagers like the one mine is. Um, but uh, we did it and, uh, to get because we were under pressure to provide. Now, what I'm trying to describe to you is what Philip Yancey calls a world of ungrace. A world of ungrace, which is, which is driven by the pressure to perform, to achieve, and to uh, afford, and to succeed, and to just constantly be doing a little bit more, a little bit better. So how do we deal with the pressure? As I said earlier, the replacements dealt with the pressure by sabotaging by themselves. Showing up drunk to important gigs. They recorded this amazing album, Tim, and then they put out a mix that was almost unlistenable. Okay, they, they, they're, they're not a place to look. But how did I deal with it, right? Uh, I did it by collecting baseball cards. Um, now, I don't know if you know this, any, any guys out there, any, or girls, who collected baseball cards in the 1980s or 90s? They're worthless, right? They don't—they—they they did not appreciate in value whatsoever. You should have invested in comic books. Marvel took over the universe. The major leagues are trying to get people to their games, uh, but so I decided I didn't have much money, but I wanted to have something to look forward to when we were moving, you know, because everything was unpleasant. And so, if I could get, like, a, spend $1.50 on eBay to get a card that it was coming, I could get a rated rookie, a Bo Jackson rated rookie card. Or I got a Dwight Gooden 1985 Donruss card. It was amazing that day. Um, I think I paid 75 cents plus shipping. Keith Hernandez. If, you know, if you're a Le Seinfeld fan, you know Keith Hernandez. He was a boyhood hero of mine. I grew up outside New York City. I was... Punting back to my childhood, I was trying to surround myself with comforting presence because uh, to escape the pressure. Because when you're a kid, at least a kid in the 80s, there wasn't the same amount of pressure. And so, if I can just get enough baseball cards like this one, <laughs> all right, Kirby, so young, so fresh faced. So, after a while, though, I got a little sick of um, collecting the good cards and I decided I wanted to find the funniest cards. So I got this one. There's all sorts of databases of the, the worst baseball cards. Felix Milan played for the, he was known for choking up on the bat. <laughs> it's like, looks a little like Mario too. And he's, that's Felix. This is Mike Armstrong. I don't know what he played. I just know he looks like a serial killer <laughs> for his card in the Royals. And it's an infamous card. Like people collect these cards. Then I got this guy, which is a work of art. Apparently, it was completely airbrushed, so he was not, in fact, wearing a black turtleneck that day <laughs> or dressed to look like Father Vigil, Virgil Carducci from Saturday Night Live. Um, he, he, there's, there's interviews with him. He's like, I'm actually kind of a good-looking guy, and they made me look like, uh, again, a serial killer. Um, and then, of course, I got this one. That was very important to me. To get Costanza in there, um, but there's one uh, card that eluded me the whole time. One that I kept. I've lost about six different auctions on because I refuse to pay top dollar, and it's this one. Do you guys, anyone like Daryl Strawberry out there? Yeah. So if you were born in uh, outside of New York City in the late '70s or early '80s, Daryl Strawberry was not just a superstar; he was a superhero. He was a young uh, slugger for the New York Mets, and he had a name that is like the coolest name ever, Daryl Strawberry. And this is the 1983 Topps traded card, and I was never able to get it, but I wanted to tell you guys about it because not only did the replacements reissue Tim this week, but two weeks ago, a documentary came out called The Saint of Second Chances, and it, it's about the St. Saint Paul Saints right down the road, right? I actually was talking to someone in the lobby about the St. Saint Paul Saints earlier. They are a minor league baseball team. And lo and behold, not only was I going to Minneapolis to talk to people about grace, I um, was obsessed with Daryl Strawberry, and he was constantly on my mind. Yet this had eluded me, um, and so I, I just knew Um, when this documentary came out that I'd have to watch it. Now, the documentary, The Saint of Second Chances, is on Netflix. It honestly came out three weeks ago. It's about Mike Veck. Mike Veck is the son of Bill Veck. Stick with me. (laughs) Bill Veck owned the White Sox in the late, uh, in the 70s. And he, anything fun that you remember, that you know about baseball games, the fact, for example, that you sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game at the seventh inning, Bill Veck started that with Harry Carey at Kaminsky Stadium. I didn't know this. They're the ones who started doing all the promotions, you know, come out, you know, for kids' night, come out for ladies' night, come out for free T-shirt night, come out for free Sunday night. Um, well, m- his son, Mike, was hired by his dad to be a promoter for the White Sox. And he thought up a great idea in 1977. You see, Mike was the sort of guy who would have really liked the replacements and therefore really hated disco music. And he decided to run a promotion where you could come into a White Sox game for 99 cents if you brought a disco record that they could blow up after the, between the doubleheaders. This was called Disco Demolition Evening. And this really happened July 12, 1977. They got a record number of people in, all young people, and it turned into a riot. They couldn't play the second game because kids stole home base. I mean, it was that kind of thing. Mike, young Mike, took the fall for the fiasco. And a year later, Bill was compelled to sell the team. Now, what happened was for Mike, uh, he went on a long, as he says, a long drunk. Drinking in exile ensued for this man until he received a fortuitous opportunity, really at the lowest point. He says, Jesus made a call. He's in a basement somewhere, drunk. And he gets the opportunity to invest in the St. Paul Saints, a team that was not actually affiliated with the Twins at that point. They were an independent baseball league which is a.k.a. Nowheresville. If you've been to that stadium, I'm told that freight trains run right throughout field about like three or four times a game. Yes. (laughs) But this was his only shot. And so he invested in this team, the St. Paul Saints. And with the support of his wife, Libby, who somehow saw something in him, he took his shot at making something of himself at redemption, with the same enthusiasm and creativity that he'd inherited from his dad. He employed every and any trick he could. He installed a hot tub in the outfield. Pigs would deliver the balls to the players. You guys probably know this. There was a disgraced nun who'd been thrown out of her convent who was really good at giving massages. And so she, he hired her to give massages to people during the game. And in the documentary, she says, yes, I, I, you would picture the, the, the Jesus hanging on the cross and massaging him as these people in St. Paul are getting massages in the fourth inning. I mean, it is crazy that this happened. And you watch this documentary, you think, what am I watching? It was part circus, part party. Bill Murray co-owned them. There, and there was sort of an outgrowth of this guy, Mike's Anything Goes personality, and they became a uh, phenomenon. And basically what happened is he made baseball fun. Well, Daryl Strawberry was not having fun in 1994 and 1995. He'd gotten in trouble with the law for drugs. He had been he'd been he'd been, gotten sued for a massive amount of money for not paying child support, and he signed a huge deal, I think like nineteen million dollars, to play for the San Francisco Giants. And then he got caught with cocaine again, and he lost his contract, and no one would take him. No one would take him. That is, well, later that oh. season. Show. There, here we go. Strawberry is again. He had 300 home runs before Mickey Mantle had 300 home runs.
1: Darryl Strawberry is probably the greatest professional baseball player that had the greatest tools. And threw it all away.
0: The 38-year-old walked calmly in handcuffs, once again facing criminal charges. And investigators say it all stems from driving under the influence.
2: Darrell, do you have anything to say? What he had
0: screwed up was remarkable. He lost a $20.6 million contract, and I think it was 206 teams turned him down, every team in organized baseball. And the only time I'd heard of something like 206 available, nobody wants him,
2: was Mike Vack after disco demolition night.
3: Why did you the
2: same
3: <laughs> That's a really good question. Probably because of uh, a guy like Mike Beck.
2: So I'm driving to Owatan. I have a speaking engagement.
3: David. And he got a call from Marvin about David. And
2: they're all over it. This is great. And I've got the third vote. Ask a question, about what what's your gut on this? Suddenly, I have a guy who's violated every drug law known to man, and I'm afraid of how the fans are going to react to this. I've worked really hard to get a PG rating. I, I just really, I just really can't do this. The temperature in the car is now about minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Until Libby weighs in with her opinion. And Libby's opinion is, you hypocrite, even if it's a fourth chance, you've already said you need 200 chances yourself, and you're not going to sign the guy because he has a drug history, and you're a drunk, and you've had all of these kinds of problems, you've done things you're not, and you're not going to sign Daryl
3: Well, you're really something.
2: And she now doesn't talk to me for the rest of the trip. She's ashamed. Second
3: chances. You would not be here at all had you not gotten a second chance. Why on earth wouldn't you do that for Daryl?
2: I feel terrible having my back to you like this. Um, Thank you very much for coming. On the way to Oatana last week... Marv Goldklang and Marty Scott mentioned Daryl Strawberry's name to me and the potential of, of signing him, and I was, at best, lukewarm. And I apologize uh, for that to the Strawberries, but that was, was my reaction. I
3: got a feel of how sincere he was, you know, and that was a good feeling. That was different than most. I believe if Major League Baseball has blackballed me, I'm not bitter about it. That's one thing I would like to say, because I've had some great years that I can always remember.
0: Can you just tell me kind of what headspace you were in at that time?
3: Completely lost. You know, lost for life. Didn't, didn't really care about the fact that life existed anymore living. You lose hope. Nobody wanted to give me a chance at the time. I was just living. I think I was just existing, put it like that. Tough business, Marty, you know? I really didn't ever care about baseball. I didn't care if I ever played again. I thought I could actually go there and hide and nobody would know anything. (laughs) For me, that's the the kind of thought process I had at that particular time, is to go there and really actually just play and see if I like baseball again.
1: You know, I came out, and the media was all ready for Daryl to come out. And then all eyes and cameras going, what the heck is going on?
2: Wrote me letters, called me up. He goes, you know, I don't have any legs, (laughs) but I wanted that bat.
1: I bothered him enough where he said, come out and let's see what you can do. And the rest is history that nobody knows. When I was a young kid and found out about Eddie Goodell, people always said, you're as tall as Eddie Goodell. And I was like, I'm an athlete. And one day I'm going to prove it. And Mike let
2: me. This guy was a fierce competitor, and I just wanted to show people what
1: was possible. How does a guy without legs play professional baseball? Uh, You got to watch it. Super Dave.
3: (laughs) Everybody thought Super Dave was crazy. but uh, I thought it was pretty cool. I was really impressed with it.
2: A week later, I hear this, hey, boss, man, you got a minute? Why is that guy so happy? And I go, maybe it's just that you're so unhappy.
1: Daryl was humbled beyond anything he could have imagined. It brought him back to the reality of this is it. This is my last shot.
2: You are at the end of your career. Watching Dave Stevens, it got him outside himself.
3: I took great joy in that friendship. What would be your nickname for me? Stud.
1: Stud. Stubber. Stubber stud. 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 He's a stud, huh?
3: (laughs) We can relate. You know, we can relate to
1: life. I was almost AA for three weeks. I didn't judge him for his past. I, I judged him on the merits of the moment. And lo and behold, he's having fun.
2: I'm not sure Daryl Strawberry ever had fun playing professional baseball.
3: That ball is gone.
1: This one's hit well to center. Powell going back, but forget about it. Home run number 18 for Daryl Strawberry.
3: I was playing at a whole different level. All of a sudden, something new and exciting came out of me.
0: The third at bat. Bam! Three home. Not done yet. Later that season,
2: the show called Daryl was going to the Yankees. When Daryl left, he came in and gave me the greatest compliment maybe I've ever gotten. And he just said, Bossman, he taught me to love the game again. He said, i would forgotten how much fun it is to play baseball. <laughs>
3: Joe Mike, be sure to send me these jerseys because okay. I can, you know, friendly. Okay. All right. You know, I haven't got a chance to ever share all this. St. Paul brought me back to life. It made me see life better. And made me understand. they are not that darn important. You know, enjoy this while we got a chance. I don't want to be a superstar anymore. I just want to be.
0: All right, so I'm not sure how much you could make out of that, but... Um... Daryl Strawberry comes, uh, everyone has blackballed him, except for Mike Veck, whose wife says, you've been given so many second chances, and you're really going to not give him another one? They would say the St. Saint Paul Saints was the place you'd go for your fourth second chance. And so Veck says, okay, I got to do it. I got to allow Strawberry back into the team. And then Strawberry comes, and he's, he's sad, and he's, he's, he's sort of defeated until he becomes friends with with Dave Stevens, a legless baseball player. At that point in the documentary, I said, what, what is happening <laughs> in, in this? Is this really, did this, is this planet Earth? And uh, his, he, he says at the end, I didn't need to be Daryl Strawberry anymore, I just wanted to be. And he apparently only agreed to be in the documentary because Dave Stevens was gonna be in it. And this, um, It's a beautiful, beautiful story of mercy, uh, the mercy that Mike Vec has received, birthing mercy towards other people. And it's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God, of Mike Vec redeeming the broken and the discarded and the disgraced and bringing them into having fun again. It reminds me so much of the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14. Then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out and see see it. Please accept my apologies. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my apologies. Another said, I've just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master, then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. You might add to that the ashamed, the convicted. And the slave said, sir, what you ordered has been done and there is still room. Well, that is what we get to see in the St. Paul Saints a picture of the kingdom of God, of redemption working under its opposite and in the most strange place imaginable. Now, isn't this what the church is supposed to be? A little bit, at least? Isn't it supposed to be the place where you find the last, the least, the lost, the lonely? I think so. But I know that there's a lot of pressure on churches, too, a lot of pressure on churches. Maybe you've familiar with some of these sorts of graphs. Church membership among U.S. adults now below fifty percent. And any kind of way you twist it, what we hear about is church decline, the increasing amount of nuns in the world. In the sixties and seventeen, uh, in the nineteen sixties and seventies, I think um, six to nine percent of uh, the U.S. population said that they were not religiously affiliated. And uh, uh, in 2001, excuse me, uh, the current number is 20 to 22 percent And among the millennial and Gen Z generations, the nuns have increased to 35% and 29% respectively. Now, what that translates to is an enormous amount of pressure. It's an enormous amount of pressure on clergy, enormous amount of pressure on church leadership boards. It's an enormous amount of pressure on basically anyone who says they go to church to kind of make the case. How is the church going to attract young people and how are you going to keep them? Well, you're going to have a mockingbird conference. Gosh darn it. You know, that's the answer. I don't know. We talk about the benefits of community. We pioneer new, incredible children's programs. I don't know what happens. I know that that the response in some areas of the church is to as, as sort of the confusion in the and the and the discord in the culture increases. You hear calls from some Christians that we show we stand up for the truth more. We double down on morality, and we stop talking about mercy and grace. We dispense with the winsomeness, is how you hear people talk about it. But perhaps the pressure that churches are under actually reveals the way forward. It clarifies the work of the church, the reason for its existence, that the only answer to the world of ungrace is grace. This is Christianity's best gift to the world. It's a spiritual supernova in our midst that can exert a force stronger than vengeance, stronger than hate, and the circular exchange of reciprocity and division. Gordon MacDonald one wrote, once wrote that the world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses. Feed the hungry or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. And that, I think, is the reason people actually come to church. Out of a hunger for grace, out of a Daryl Strawberry-like lack of other options, he was turned down. You hear, did you get that? He was turned down by 206 teams, and the only time that guy had ever heard of anyone being turned down by that many baseball teams was Mike Vec after the disco demolition. Amazing. He's out of options. People under the pressure cooker of society are out of options. And church, if anything, if it has a right to exist, well, it is the place where grace is always flowing freely. It is to take back a word, which has been sort of re- uh, appropriated. It is a dispensary <laughs> of grace. It is the only message we have left, and that's fortunate because it's the only message the world actually needs. Philip Yancey in his book, Uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, he said, I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned though because I found grace nowhere else. What a wonderful quote. And it's a clarifying one for people who say this is the only message we actually have is the same message that somehow produced It was the precursor to the great banquet and the fun of minor league silliness. Um, it, It is the grace of God because that's what these are all echoes of. It's the same thing Paul was talking about in Corinthians when he said, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, think of Dave Stevens, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. That, my friends, is the only message we have left. It doesn't look like wisdom, but it's a whole lot of fun. Because we're in a Lutheran church, I'm going to quote a Lutheran to end. In 1758, J.G. Hamann read through the Bible and scribbled some reflections in the, along the way as his uh, sort of Betrachtungen. And when he was talking about 1 John, he suggests that the redemption on offer eliminates any fundamental difference between the old and the young because we are all by grace children of the one we call Abba Father. Then he comes to these lines. He says, we old people do not know more than you know. We know God so loved the world. We know nothing. We all know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. So rejoice. Again, I say it, rejoice. I have nothing more to write to you. I have nothing more to write to you, and I will never grow tired of writing this to you. I write it to you anew so that your joy may be full. Your sins are forgiven for His name's sake." He sounds a bit like a mockingbird repeating the word that he's heard. The point here as we open this, these 20 hours together is that the pressure that the world exerts is not the end of the world, and nor is it the end of the church. To paraphrase the replacements, Hope does not arrive apart from grief and defeat, but in its midst, lights do indeed flash in the evening through the crack in the drapes, or something like that. Amen.